You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. All right, our text today is taken from Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishab the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair." 
And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. So, heroes, heroes in literature, heroes in pop culture, heroes in ancient mythology, heroes in the latest children's movie, these heroes often arise as an answer to what the world perceives to be the greatest need at that very moment. You can typically trace these hero characters back to their origins, emerging as a response to real-life circumstances in the world. Back in the day, it was mobsters and classic villains and Cold War enemies. Today, it's um, viruses and rogue technology and things like that. I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid trying to like Captain Planet. Remember Captain Planet? He's our hero. He's going to reduce pollution down to zero. That's why he's here. And I said I tried because I was not a big fan. And here's why. Because I was a kid. And I did not recognize, at the time, pollution as a pressing need. Like bad guys, mobsters in dark alleys with Tommy guns, that seemed way more possible in my life. Uh, things like that, villains, monsters, that made sense to me. But carbon emissions, carbon what? You see, if you don't recognize the need, then you will never truly appreciate the hero. That's the story of Palm Sunday. And it's really the ongoing issue at the heart of the Christian faith. Can you recognize the dire need that exists in you and the dire need that exists in the world? A need that the gospel of Jesus Christ uniquely provides for because if you can't recognize that need, then you will miss the true hero and you will spend the rest of your life looking all over the place for heroes that will disappoint you and can never deliver you. D.A. Carson once said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was a political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he, if he perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor, but he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. Now, here's the question. What does Nehemiah 13 have to do with Palm Sunday? other than maybe a mismanagement of my time and uh, 
kind of a little error there when I was planning out the spring preaching calendar. But other than that, actually quite a bit, and we're going to find that out. So let's look at this passage under three headings, the subtle drift, the dramatic return, and the triumphal entry. A three-point sermon can change and fix any problem. First, the subtle drift. Now, Remember that Nehemiah was a big shot in Jerusalem. He was the governor for 12 years, but he was a servant to the king, Artaxerxes, the Persian king. He was a cupbearer. And despite his significant role in Jerusalem, he had promised the king that he would go back and report to the king as a servant of Artaxerxes. And so he keeps that promise and he goes back. And he's away from Jerusalem. Now, we're not sure how long he is gone, but some time has lapsed as he's away from Jerusalem. And here in Nehemiah 13, he finally returns back to Jerusalem, and when he comes back, he discovers just a very different city than when he left. Instead of returning to a people who are living holy and set apart lives to God, flourishing as a reflection of heaven in this beautiful, you know, newly rebuilt city, what he finds is a people who have declined significantly. And as you read through this chapter, there's a repeated idea here. Verse 1, it was found. Verse 7, I discovered. Verse 10, I found. Verse 15, I also saw. Verse 23, I also saw. Everywhere he turns, he discovers these areas of moral and spiritual decline. So how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, first we see that Israel was tolerating foreign influences in their religious practices. Now, by the way, um, all this talk about foreigners, I need to mention this. It is not a racial statement. It is a religious statement. God makes ways for ethnic outsiders to be a part of the family of God. This is an illustration of that. None of us belongs. God made a way. So foreigners is not referring to necessarily an ethnic group or a racial group, but religious. And what's being condemned here is that the people of God have allowed the influence of the nations around them to invade every sacred space among them. They are tolerating what they should not. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is seen as holy and needing to be guarded and protected for the sake of devotion to God. And so the nations that they were intentionally supposed to contrast and look different then have now been allowed to begin to shape them. Not to mention Eliashib the priest has given Tobiah, you remember Tobiah? He's one of Jerusalem's enemies. Elisha the priest has given Tobiah not just a place in Jerusalem, a place to live in the temple. The very place that is intended for God to dwell among people is now being desecrated. So let's pause here for a moment. This should cause us to ask, what sort of influences have we opened our minds, our hearts, our homes, and even our church up to? What are we tolerating? Now you may say, Christian, that's, that's not apples to apples. We're talking about the temple, really? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in New Testament. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now I remember hearing this as a, as a kid growing up. You know, the body's a temple. It had to do with diet and exercise. I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. Where have we opened the temple doors in our lives to the way of the world, 
and to the enemy of our soul to creep in and take up residence. Subtle drift. We also see neglect in worship. The house of God has been forsaken. Devotion to gather as God's people and to worship the Lord and to give of their finances for the support of the work of the ministry has been almost entirely given up on, which means that now the ministers have to go back to farming to provide for their family. They had to get other jobs. But what's interesting about this is that earlier in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 10, we read of this beautiful covenant renewal ceremony where the people of God explicitly promised this. Nehemiah 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of God. Never, not on our watch. Here they are, doing the very thing they promised to never do. They've neglected the house of God. Worship is not a value. It's not a priority. And as we see here in Nehemiah, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, and I think as we can see from Christian history, if you do not see worship as a priority, you should not be surprised when your children don't see God as necessary. Subtle drift. They've drifted in their practice of Sabbath. They've allowed busyness and these merchant businesses to infringe on the one day that the Lord has commanded that they rest. So these, these merchants and these things have been allowed to consume their Sabbath day and they are so persistent that Nehemiah had to lock the door and threaten them because they kept, they kept coming back in, they kept sneaking back in to Jerusalem. Things will always try to sneak back into the times and the spaces that you have set aside as devoted to God. These times and these spaces will actually be most susceptible. You carve out a time, you say, I'm going to be intentional about this time for God, and that will be the target. You give an inch, they'll take a mile. And pretty soon, you won't even be able to imagine what a day, an entire day set aside, devoted to the Lord would actually look like. Pretty soon you'll be saying things like, well, I've got too many things to do. Or my job doesn't allow for that. Or you don't understand I depend on my overtime. Or I have too many family responsibilities. Or it's wedding season. Or it's travel ball season. Or man, I have a lot of friends having wedding showers on this day and that day. And on and on and on. Subtle drift. And despite the clear command in God's word, they, we see here they're forming marriages that are unequally yoked, meaning that God's people are marrying unbelieving people. Again, foreign women is not a racial description here. It is a religious one. And because of this, their kids are now so utterly confused by this strange arrangement that they can't even speak the language. They have now become one generation completely biblical, biblically illiterate. The spiritual devotion in these families is almost entirely neglected and now things, as you would imagine, trend towards unbelief. So let's step back here. What does drift look like in Nehemiah? Well, it's not all that ancient, actually. It's not all that strange. The word of God is disregarded. The house of God is forsaken. The Sabbath is neglected. And families are divided. 
And in just one generation, a community of faith has declined so dramatically that they're almost unrecognizable. And in just one generation, they look nothing different. They look no different than the nations around them. Among many things that we can learn from Israel's history, one of the main lessons is that people don't naturally move towards progress. We don't just get better. We don't just get better on our own, and despite the phrase, we are not better together. (laughs) Sometimes we're worse together. Look at the world. Look at our history. Let's get honest. Just look at your own life. Look at your own family story. If we are left to ourselves, we trend towards neglect. If left to ourselves, we trend toward deterioration. And and here's the most alarming thing about all this. This kind of drift is so subtle, no one recognizes that it's happening. Maybe you've spent time in the ocean If you spent time in the ocean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You could be swimming or body surfing or surfing, and then you look up and you realize that you've drifted far from where you began. The currents have moved you in a direction so subtly that you didn't even know it was happening. And like this experience of drifting in the ocean, you don't have to do anything to drift. No one tries to drift. No one wakes up one day and says, today's the day I begin to drift. This is what I want to do with my life. No one puts forth effort to drift. All you have to do is literally just go with the flow. And you will trend towards decline as individuals, as families, as a community. So here lies the need that I was talking about earlier. Here lies the need. The need is this. The need is our inability to naturally achieve wholeness. Life is beautiful. Humanity is unique. Humanity is full of such potential. And yet the true wholeness that we were created to experience is now naturally out of reach. And the reason for this is because of sin, or as some have described it, as the bondage to the human will. We are incapable of moving toward the life that we were intended to live. It's like forever window shopping. There it is on the other side of the glass, but always out of reach. Even the Apostle Paul would describe his life like this in Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? So You're going to see my connection to Palm Sunday here in just a minute. So this is an important time to ask, which direction is your life moving? And I'm asking everyone here, doesn't matter how young you are, old you are, or where you are in faith, or if you're a believer or you're not, just answer this question to to yourself, which direction is your life moving right now? Are you realistically trending toward more joy and more peace? 
Are you moving towards more fulfillment? Toward more unity in your home? In understanding in your relationships? Are you growing in love? Are you growing in devotion? Are you successfully becoming the person that you most deeply desire to become? Or maybe right now you are recognizing the drift in your life. Maybe this very moment is like in the ocean, that moment you look up and you realize, oh, I've moved. Maybe you realize that you're not becoming the person that you desire to be. To de- to be. Maybe you're realizing that you're becoming someone unrecognizable. Maybe you're sensing the need that the gospel of Jesus provides for. Subtle drift. The second thing we see here is the dramatic return. What we see in chapter 13 is what the, the header there in your Bible calls Nehemiah's final reforms. This is his last-ditch effort to whip Jerusalem into shape. And as he returns to the city, he wastes no time in setting things straight. Things have declined dramatically, so big shocker here, Nehemiah responds very dramatically. Now, Nehemiah's actions are going to appear very harsh because they are very harsh. But how we measure his response is going to be determined by what we think about what's happening here in Jerusalem. If we're thinking to ourselves, like, what's the big deal? So what? The influence of the nations around them is there. So what? The Levites go get real jobs. So what if businesses stay open on the Sabbath? So what if people marry whoever they want to marry? This This looks like progress. This looks like a tolerant people to me. See, if you don't have a high view of God's commands and the importance of God calling his people to live holy and distinct lives, to intentionally look different than the world around them, then certainly Nehemiah is going to appear like a monster. But even if you do understand these things, and you do understand the importance of God's call to holiness, it's still a little bit unsettling. I mean, some of his actions are extremely constructive and practical. He sets up new treasures to make sure the finances in the temple are being accounted for. Wow. But also there's some actions here that are far more destructive. Verse 25, and I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. That's aggravated assault, if you're keeping score here. That, that, is, that is leadership cancellation, no-brainer, 101. So the questions that we have to wrestle with here are, which of these reactions are good, and which of these reactions are bad? And how do you determine that? Because if we make our decisions based on the way that culture moves, well, maybe Nehemiah's reactions are culturally appropriate. Are they good? Are they bad? Which ones do we apply? Which ones do we not? How about these questions? Did any of this work? Were any of these reforms effective in lasting change? See, if we've been treating Nehemiah simply as a helpful leadership guide, best practices for spiritual leadership, how to be an effective organizational leader, guess what? We have a serious dilemma here. And 
and really we wait to the very end to be let down. You're like, oh, I was modeling my, my life after Nehemiah and that was not a good decision. Because while Nehemiah is a great leader we, and we can learn things from his leadership, he loses it here. The wheels fall off. And the city that he has rebuilt has declined into ruins very quickly. And so he doubles down. He rules with an iron fist thinking that that's going to work. See, Nehemiah is a great leader, but at the end of the day, here's the deal. Nehemiah is human. Nehemiah is someone just like me and you who sinned. Nehemiah is someone who's hurt people. Nehemiah is someone who overreacts. And ultimately, he was someone who was just simply incapable of leading the people of Jerusalem into lasting restoration to become who they should become. Turns out, Nehemiah was not the hero that he was shaping up to be. He was passionate about the purity of the people, that's pretty clear. But there was nothing in him that was capable of making it a reality. He, just like you and I, he was able to deal with the symptoms of spiritual decline, but he was incapable of providing for the deeper need the deeper need that would just continue to result in the same broken patterns for generations to come. All of his reforms, all of his efforts are temporarily keeping sin at bay that then just creep up when he turns his back momentarily. Where, where did you come from? <clears throat> Maybe you can associate with this in your life. You put forth a lot of energy, a lot of effort. You think... You think you got things in your life straightened up? Things are moving along quite swiftly. You turn your back, you turn around, and it's broken again. Dang. At the close of this chapter, he, he summarizes his last efforts with three statements. This is fi Nehemiah's final act, recorded act as leader. I cleansed, I established, I provided, I'm out. Here's the question. Was it enough? Was it enough? And just a cursory look at Israel's history would point out the fact, the glaring fact, that it was not enough. Which may explain why when it comes to the New Testament Gospels, why people are so ready and so desperate for the promised Messiah, a coming king, why people so eagerly line the streets of Jerusalem in anticipation of something greater. Which leads to our final point, the triumphal entry. I asked, what does Nehemiah 13 have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, it turns out quite a bit. In the Gospels, we read that 450 years later, Jesus also came into a foreign-occupied Jerusalem, a city that had deteriorated and a temple that has been desecrated because of foreign influences as well, and yet we see very different outcomes. And here's why. Because Jesus doesn't enter into Jerusalem to reform it. Jesus comes to rescue. The people needed a greater leader. Yes, one who would cleanse, establish, and provide, but not through intimidation. 
and, and certainly not through violence, but through humble sacrifice. Not by cursing and beating and pulling people's hair out, but as we read in the Gospels, a leader who would offer himself to be cursed, to be beaten, for his beard to be pulled out. Look with me again in Matthew chapter 21. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks over the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the people of the city were stirred up, saying, who is this? Wait, who is this? You could almost hear this like strange mix of anticipation and confusion, joy and absolute disappointment. This? See, the city gathers, lining the streets to see the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, an anointed leader who would enter into the gates of Jerusalem in strength and in might, and instead, Jesus comes in meekness and humility. They expect a royal figure on a war horse. That's what Alexander the Great did hundreds of years before when he came into Jerusalem. Surely that's how the king of glory will come in, and what does he do? He comes in on a donkey. And they're waving their palm branches. This is a symbol of political victory, and yet they see no army. They're singing Hosanna, the son of David, which means bring victory now. They are rightly anticipating a king. They are rightly anticipating a hero. But what kind? What kind of king? What kind of hero? Remember, if you can't recognize the need, then you'll never truly appreciate the hero. So what's the need in their minds? The need in their minds is for more reform. More action, more leadership, more kicking butt and taking names. But what's the need that Jesus sees? Well, it's, it's one that the people of Jerusalem at that time were going to struggle to identify in themselves. And it's one that we're going to struggle to identify in us as well today. And what that need was, was the need for rescue. Yes, rescue us from Rome, rescue us from... Not just rescue from the bad things out there. I think that that's pretty easy to identify. But first and foremost, the need from rescue from ourselves and the sin that resides in us. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would say this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's Paul saying? He's saying that we are rescued from living life for ourselves and bound to the limits of ourselves. You can't. But that's no longer the controlling principle of your life. It's interesting, whenever we envision the life that we wished that we'd be living, Whenever we envision who we thought we should be by now at this point in our lives, we often envision a very different set of circumstances, don't we? If I had better health, if I had a better family, if I had a better job, if I lived in a better place, then I would have what I need to become the person that I should be. 
But here's the problem. We bring us into every circumstance. You can't escape you, no matter how good or bad the circumstance. We see this from the story of Adam and Eve. Even in paradise, people trend towards decline. Even in paradise, turns out we need rescue. But as much as we naturally move towards decline, the good news that I'm here to proclaim to you this morning, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus moves towards rescue all the more. And despite the rate of our drift, the love of Christ reaches us and now, as Paul says, controls us or quite literally holds us fast. The anchor for our soul so that our future is not determined by our best or our worst, but is now based on God's ability to transform us, to bring to completion the work that he begins in us. For the one who trusts in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, a new reality comes into our lives, a new controlling principle, Paul says. As he goes on to describe in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are no longer defined by decline. You are no longer destined to endlessly drift. But you're made new with a new heart with new desires, new motivation, new power by his Holy Spirit. I appreciate you. It's not getting better than the gospel, guys. It really won't. Not here. Thank you. Nehemiah failed. And guess what? So have you. You're in a room full of failures. But Christ faileth not. And in God's story, what we see from Nehemiah and what we see from our own testimonies is that even failure can pave the way for redemption. And God draws straight lines with even the most crooked sticks. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...